welcome to Retro Game Audio. My name is Patrick. I'm Steve. And I'm Paul Weinstein. Uh, yes, that's that's right. Today we're joined by our friend Paul. Um, Paul, tell us, uh, the listeners, a little bit about what you do. So uh, I perform and write and create music uh, under the name Chippercrit. Um, as I guess I'm a chiptune musician, um, and like my main sound chip or synthesizer or instrument at this point, I consider it my favorite instrument of choice is the Game Boy, the original Nintendo Game Boy. Yes, that's uh, fantastic. And um, the listeners, I'm sure, probably don't know, but um, you play uh, bass and also guitar in the band Cheap, Cheap Dinosaurs. And, that's right. And I used to play drums in Cheap Dinosaurs, so that's right. we are former bandmates. So we mm-hmm. we go back. Uh, with this whole like chip music thing. And uh, yeah, so I mean, it's just great to talk to you again. And I, you know, I wanted someone on for the Game Boy episode. And I was like, oh man, we got to get Paul on. Cause uh, that's awesome. Yeah, awesome so. to be here. Cause like, I've been listening to your show for a while and like, I've always wanted to, I was trying to figure out some kind of sneaky way to like invite myself on. <laughs> but, you know. Oh no, no, it was, it, it, yeah, it was going to happen anyways. So that's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess, uh, as we just mentioned too, uh, today we're talking about the Game Boy and Game Boy Color. So it's a handheld gaming system that, probably doesn't need much of an introduction <laughs> yeah i don't think so <laughs> I, I think it's safe to say uh everyone listening to the podcast knows what a game boy is i, I would hope so at least uh, right it's nintendo's wildly successful handheld gaming system and it was originally released in 1989 uh i believe it sold over 118 million units if you count all the different versions of the game boy color etc etc so that's a lot of <laughs> that's a yeah. lot of systems mm-hmm. um so if the listener didn't own one themselves you obviously knew someone who did mm-hmm. right uh the game boy was designed by gunpei yokoi who had previously created nintendo's game and watch handheld series with the advancement of technology and the success of the nes uh, the game boy was created by nintendo with pretty high expectations for success which you know obviously the game boy not only delivered on but even really surpassed yeah and i was, I was reading about gunpei yokoi on wikipedia because, you know, I didn't really know much about him other than that, who's the creator of the Game Boy and Metroid, and that, like, unfortunately, he died in a car accident. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, shortly oh. after, like, kind of soon after the failure of the Virtual Boy, so um, mm. it's sort of like a tragic end to his story. Um, but, like, first of all, I learned that he also invented the D-pad, which oh, yeah. which is crazy. I mean, that that's, like, that's awesome. Yeah, you know what, now that you mentioned that, I do feel like I recognize that name, like, yeah, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah, it, it's pretty crazy to see like a single person credited for the invention of the D-pad. That's like the, you know, just something we take for granted, something we, totally, we yeah. see as standard. So, Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting, too, because I believe that uh, the creation of the D-pad, directional pad, that's what we're referring to, uh, yeah. that is kind of, you know, the little like crossbar thing on Nintendo and the, on the Game Boy. Um, they had, I believe, exclusive rights to that design for some time, which is why a lot of the other gaming consoles of the time do not have that exact shape. Interesting. The Master System does it. The Genesis couldn't have it. It has to have that circular thing. And the TurboGrafx-16, et cetera, et cetera. They couldn't have that little kind of like X-cross thing that was the D-pad. Yeah. Isn't that even why to this day that the PlayStation controllers, they're they're laid out like a D-pad, but there's actually mm-hmm. spaces between the buttons? Yep. They're like mm-hmm. That's like their sort of like legal workaround. It's like, oh, wow. it's just like the D-pad, but none of the four buttons actually connect. Hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I, I, yeah, I believe that's correct. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but yeah, like something else I learned about him uh, was that he had this de- design philosophy that roughly translates to lateral thinking with seasoned technology. Um, sounds like it's a very Japanese thing. Uh, 
the idea, <laughs> uh, you know, the idea is that electronic games and toys didn't necessarily need cutting edge technology due to how expensive and prohibitive that can be. So, like, instead, if you can find something that's relatively uh, cheap and abundant, uh, and if you can find a way to make games that are fun uh, with that technology and new and interesting ways, that you'd have a formula for success. And, you know, that philosophy, like, clearly still rings true for Nintendo as a whole today. Oh, yeah, no, like, absolutely. absolutely. That's a Nintendo to a T. Um, there's a specific example of this mentioned on Wikipedia uh, with the Game & Watch series. If you remember, they're like little handhelds. Kind of like, I guess the best equivalent would be like a, if you remember the Tiger LCD screens. It's kind of similar to that, I believe. Maybe a little bit mm-hmm. little bit better, yeah. maybe? I don't. I can't really recall the Game & Watch very much off the top of my head. Right. Uh, and I, don't, I don't think I had like one. I had Mario Cement Factory, I think. And yeah, it was just like, I wouldn't even call it animation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like the Tiger handhelds. Yeah, they were pretty similar. Yeah. So with the Game & Watch series, Sharp and Casio were in heavy competitive market for creating calculators. And the result of this was an abundance of cheap LCDs and semiconductors. And Gunpei saw someone playing with their calculator in a train and got the idea to make games with that exact technology, kind of going back to what we just said about using, you know, lateral thinking with season technology. Yeah, like that makes so much sense, too, because like I was reading that that's also apparently the reason why the original Game Boy didn't have color. Uh, it's not because the technology didn't exist or was too difficult to achieve. I mean, you remember that uh, there were other handhelds coming out not too much longer around the same time that had color. Um, but it just it would have made the Game Boy more expensive and have a shorter battery life. So Nintendo just in, very intentionally went to go with what was cheaper and more reliable. You know, it was a very conscious decision. And I think, thankfully, that one place they didn't really take a shortcut, though, was with the audio. Oh, yeah, that's definitely true. Like, And, and you don't... You don't even necessarily realize it when you're playing a Game Boy game and unless you like really put on like headphones and like think about what's going on and think about how much better it is than it probably could have been. <laughs> it, you know, as we'll talk more in the episode, like it's I would say at least as good as the NES. Yeah, I would even I would even say I think maybe better than the NES. Mm-hmm. Um, if you pose the question, um, like what's better, what sounds better, the NES or the Game Boy? I feel like I could give you two different answers, and I feel like if you compare like old Game Boy and NES soundtracks, I think the NES soundtracks almost always come ahead. Like you look at Castlevania soundtracks on the Game Boy, Mega Man soundtracks on the Game Boy, and it's like the NES counterparts are pretty much always better. Mm-hmm. Um, but you get to later Game Boy stuff, and you'll hear some of this more later in the episode. And it just, it, I feel like you can get more modern sound out of the Game Boy. There, it has an edge to it that the NES doesn't quite have i feel like and i feel like if you wanted to make like modern electronic sounding music like the game boy is sort of the, probably the sound chip of choice yeah I, I agree with that i also feel like and i don't mean this in a disrespectful way because especially steve <laughs> i know you love the nes um <laughs> yeah. there's this there's a certain thing that you can like hear you hear a soundtrack and you like might just know off the bat that it's an nes soundtrack mm-hmm. but like you might hear a game boy thing and not really know right off the bat like oh my god, this is a Game Boy track? Like, some of the guys who were just, like, pushing the limits of it really were making it just, it's like C64 stuff, like, you know? Like, you can make a Game Boy kind of sound like that. You can really push the stuff, like, really beyond. So it's just not quite, it just feels like it's more of a versatile um, system, I guess. Yeah, no, I I, th- I think it's a fair comment to say. I mean, because I have only made, like, NES music as well, so I'm sort of, I have that in common with Steve, where we're more fame tracker guys and haven't really like, mm-hmm. played around with, like, LSDJ. 
Um, but yeah, I like to give credit where credit's due. I do feel like there's something, there's a special edge that the Game Boy has, even though I'm more of an NES guy. So I feel like honestly, the the, the a lot of why the Game Boy ends up sounding better is, and just you know, kind of playing my devil's advocate here, but a lot of like Game Boy had a lot more opportunities for development because it was around for a very long time. That's a good um, point. And I, yeah. and I think that that like you know, it, imagine like think about when Pokemon came out. You know, I'm actually just replaying Pokemon Yellow right now, which is funny, but that's like '97. <laughs> you know, no, yeah. we're already yeah. in. I already had a PlayStation in my house when I was doing that. I had like totally, close, yeah. like PlayStation Two is a little bit later, so I think that there is like kind of a more versatility, more uh, kind of utilization of that versatility, simply because the console was around for a very long time. And I feel like if you listen to very late era um, NES tracks, you hear that people are starting to come up with newer ideas, but it kind of got washed over. So it, I just that's think it's, I think that's kind of uh, you know it, it, we're looking at the history of it. I think that's a good explanation for why at a certain point the uh, the Game Boy tracks definitely sound better. Um, and then yeah, in terms yeah. of like the modern sound, I think that the modern chip sound of the you know the Game Boy has been explored a lot more and is much more mature <laughs> and it, it just it's just more capable of doing things than the two AO three. Yeah, I think the versatility is owed a lot to the wavetable synth, mm-hmm. and we'll you know Absolutely. we'll talk about that more coming up. Yep. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, if you look at the other systems from the time, you know I think Nintendo. You know, they made an effort with the sound. Um, you know, I can't find any direct quotes or history from the developers on why they designed the sound hardware the way they did. Um, you know, I'd be interested to see if those comments exist. But uh, I feel like this had to be a thing with Nintendo. Because you look at the competitors. There's the Sega Master System with better graphics, more colors, etc. Uh, but the Master System had that PSG audio, which was more limited than the NES. Then you also have the Sega Game Gear. It's the same situation. You compare it to the Game Boy, it's more limited than the Game Boy's audio. So it doesn't seem to me like they went with the cheapest audio solution. You know, like otherwise I'd expect the NES and Game Boy, like you you know, they talked about the calculators being around and getting cheap parts from them. I feel like if they took the exact same approach to the audio, that the NES and Game Boy would have sounded like an Atari, right? Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of like a Sega thing, though. Like, Sega is more about trying to create the feel and design, especially, like, when they were developing the SG-1000 and some of the the other things. They were trying to develop a console that people bought instead of going to the arcades because they could move more consoles than they could move arcade cabinets. So the idea was to use the resources they already had in the arcade and the home console experience. They were using the PSGs in a lot of that. So I feel that they just kind of, you know, Sega was just kind of borrowing a part that they already had and kind of used. I, I'm hmm. like the idea of actually developing the 2A03 or using the Z80 based system that's actually in the Game Boy. It, it's just so different. And it's it, you're right. It is a fundamentally Nintendo thing. They're like, let's just make something that everyone likes, that everyone's going to have fun with. And we don't need to wow you. And, right. I, and I think that that's kind of – I don't mean to say we don't need to wow you, but we, like, we, we rather would rest our laurels on gameplay, design, than flashiness, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and to be fair too, even though I was just talking up the audio of the Game Boy, you know, saying it wasn't like the, they didn't go with the cheapest sound. But mm-hmm. they also didn't – weren't pushing the envelope and making like the most crazy sound by any means. I mean because right. you already yeah. had the uh, SID sound chip from a bunch of years back, which had like – that was more like a true synthesizer with actual mm-hmm. filters on the sound. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's it's not the most advanced sound they could have possibly come up with, but it's still I like the idea that they put some effort and thought into the sound chip that they came up with, and uh, yeah, and it's it's a unique sound. It sounds very similar to the NES, um, but it definitely has a unique sound that's very much. That's a good. That's a good point, though. Too. Why didn't they just use the two AO three? 
yeah, I don't know. That that sort of definitely goes outside the research I was doing for this. Um, I mean, yeah, like, Game I'm Boy... just like, out of curiosity, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't even know if we can answer that question, but <laughs> it's just such a weird <laughs> right. thing. If they're just trying to borrow things they already have, they made a whole new chip, you know? Like, yeah. Right. Yeah, to catch the listeners up if they don't know the numbers we're spouting out, um, neither the NES nor Game Boy had a dedicated sound chip. Uh, they both ha- they have uh, like a CPU that has like handles the sound processing. It comes from the CPU. Um, the uh, NES uses a chip called the 2AO3, which is based off of the Motorola 6502 processor, and the Game Boy uses something called the Z80. Uh, so it's a different chip, and there are different sound channels, uh, limitations, and parameters that we're about to talk about. Um, but it's still like if you had to pick two different systems that have very similar sound but are different. I feel like NES and Game Boy are amongst the most similar out there. Yeah. The interesting thing here, too, is that uh, Gunpei uh, mentions <clears throat> that he was looking towards people who are using calculators. A lot of calculators are Z80-based, which would make a lot of sense, <laughs> maybe why that he made that decision. I don't, that, that Other than being completely arbitrary, um, that's the only thing I can think of in that situation. There was, there, there's one thing that I have been trying to remember, um, and maybe it would be worth going back and looking at. Mm-hmm. There was that documentary that came out like almost two years ago, that digging in the carts series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's a, in one of the episodes, I believe hip Tanaka, like talks specifically about being involved with de- uh, developing the game boy sound chip. Mm-hmm. And he, I do remember, I don't remember specifically exactly what he said, other than he talked about really wanting it to be stereo because he figured a lot of people would uh. use headphones and plug in. And like, I don't really know if that ever was true or not, <laughs> but, um, you know, it says it right there on the screen. Like it's it's dot matrix with stereo sound. Like they mm-hmm. they really did want to make a big deal about that. And I I don't know enough about other portable systems at the time, but I don't know how big a deal that was. Right. That that's a good point to bring up now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we we're talking about how similar it is to the NES, but the, it did add stereo sound where you could have something either centered coming out of both speakers, or it could be hard pan to the left or hard pan to the right. Mm-hmm. We have an example here from Super Mario Land that demonstrates the uh, stereo sound pretty nicely. Uh, you can hear just in the drum track the noise uh, pans from the left and right and back and forth. Uh, let's give that a listen. like as you just mentioned too it it says it right on the game boy with stereo sound so um you know somewhere in the design point that must have been something they were excited to have Mm -hmm. Uh, i'm sure it was also just a marketing thing as well like any feature that they could advertise and uh you know something they can say like hey look there's there's something different about this than the nes it's even higher quality even though it's handheld like i feel like maybe that that might be another reason for putting that on there but um yeah i mean i don't i don't know steve i don't think the game gear had stereo did it no, I just actually looked. I just actually looked that up. Yeah. No, it, it did. It did. Oh, did I just say that wrong? Let me just double check. I'm. I'm pretty. I'm like ninety nine percent sure. Like I know the Master System didn't, of course, and the Game Gear uses like the same audio. But I think it was just modified modified the chip to have stereo uh, oh. output. Let me see. Well, that's uh, interesting. Okay, wait. So we're doing an edit here because Steve actually just looked this up right now. Steve, what was your finding? So I, I, t- I took a look here. The Game Gear actually had stereo sound, but apparently it wasn't really used by anyone. <laughs> oh uh, and it was used on like first party games. I guess the original Sonic for Game Gear used it. And it, like if you collected a ring, it would be in stereo. Um, 
that sound effect. That's just so disappointing, though. <laughs> I'm not surprised, but I, I'm just disappointed. Um, <laughs> it could be. I mean, it's like so. So, as a person who like uses the Game Boy sound chip as to make music, like I use stereo effects a lot, not just as like a. I mean, certainly to like kind of create a spatial feel, but also just I don't know. Sometimes you just like run a table i mean like chop up an instrument with a, with a quick panning and it just like it's like a volume envelope kind of thing only it also like gives movement or whatever and like I, maybe programmers for soundtracks and stuff weren't thinking that way and they just yeah, were I, like let's just put it in like a weird sound effect that'll be interesting or cool or something <laughs> i mean it would, kinda... be, it would be cool to think to find a game that like had a thing where actually like when you're on the left side of the screen there was a left channel thing and you're on the right side there was a right channel thing but like they probably didn't do that (laughs) that would actually be a good question for the listeners because if there is something that does sound effects like that in the game boy please leave a comment and let us know because that would be pretty incredible actually yeah yeah um so anyways yeah i guess uh we should get started uh let's talk about the game boys uh audio channels So we already did an episode on the NES and its audio, and I think comparing and contrasting the Game Boy's audio to the NES is a good way to understand uh, what it's capable of. Uh, Because they're similar, knowing how they're different will inform you of what it brings to the table. Yeah, uh, you're right. I think that's the best way of tackling this. Um, So if you guys remember, if you you heard our episode on NES audio or whatnot, um, NES has five channels of sound. That's two pulse waves, a triangle, uh, a noise channel, and uh, a sample channel. The Game Boy instead only has four, uh, which are two pulse waves, a noise channel, and a wavetable synth channel that can also play samples. Right, and and like with that wavetable synth channel, like even though you're losing the one channel, you're not really losing sounds that the NES is capable of, because it's almost like the Game Boy consolidated the triangle channel and the sample channel into the one channel. Because like instead of only producing a triangle wave, it's much more flexible, and you can basically you can draw your own waveforms. Yeah, like that's pretty much the gist of it. And with the wave table channel, to be fair, you can't make the exact same triangle that the NES can. So it's like you mm-hmm. can't make that exact sound. Um, but I mean, losing that is like a drop in the bucket compared to what you gain. Because uh, you, you could make another triangle that sounds a little bit different, or you can make any waveform, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll be pretty low resolution. We'll see that in a moment. But um, but yeah, like that's pretty much it. So uh, yeah, let's take a closer look at uh, the parameters involved with these channels, uh, starting with the pulse wave channels. Again, these are very similar to the NES because they produce the exact same uh, timbres or voices. You have the same four duty cycles available again of 12.5%, 25%, 50%, and 75%, uh, with two of those sounding identical. So it's just uh, three different sounding voices. So, exactly. Case closed. Exactly like the NES, right? Well, things get very weird, though, with the volume parameters. Because uh, the Game Boy does have the same values available for volume, where 0 is off or silent and 15 is the loudest. Um, but manipulating the volume on the NES is a lot more fluid and open, uh, where it's easy to do these software volume envelopes, um, where you can just like make any anything you want. So, on the NES, you can make a volume that goes 15, 3, 7, 8, 1... Zero, zero, fifteen, seven, whatever. Like, just jump to any number yeah. you want at, at any time. 
Um, the Game Boy is a lot more limited, uh, at least on the surface, because it essentially has preset fade-ins or fade-outs that it uses. And this is because when you change the volume, it wants to add or subtract to your current volume. That's how it changes the volume. Mm-hmm. Um, so this it naturally creates fade-ins or fade-outs. Um, but you can't alter what volume you start on and how fast the change occurs. Yeah, and there's seven speeds available for how quickly the volume fades in or out. Uh, we actually have an example of all the fades going from volume 15 to 0 or from 0 to 15, respectively. Oh, and thanks to uh, Hun Retro Geek, by the way, for sending me that audio sample. Because uh, before we recorded this episode, uh, I was picking his brain uh, once again about some oddities of the Game Boy Audio. Because he's very knowledgeable when it comes to this stuff. But yeah, like that that volume sort of thing is very frustrating to me. Because coming from FamaTracker, I'm used to having such detailed control over the volume envelopes. Mm-hmm. And I was going to Duffel Mask to play around with making some Game Boy audio, and that just turned me off right away. I was like, "What? I can't draw like my exact volume envelope." I got like frustrated and like quit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, Steve, if you've ever, or like Paul, like, is that an issue? Yeah, it does seem like people do have issues with like volumey things in, I don't know. I, I was never sure if it was like, you know, the program that most, I guess most Game Boy musicians use is called Little Sound DJ or LSDJ. I was, I personally just like not knowing much about this particular technology, like wasn't sure if it was an LSDJ pro- thing problem or like a Game Boy sound chip problem. But yeah, there, there tends to be like not so smooth volume things or like clicky volume things that people are always kind of complaining about. Um, I've never messed, I haven't really messed with Family Tracker that much. So I don't really have anything to compare, but I, I feel like just as like a fan, a listener, like I would say that you can sort of notice like smoother volume things in NES games. That's like the one main thing that I would say the NES has over the Game Boy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that clicky sound you just mentioned, that's a result of the weird volume quirks. Um, You know, Hunter Geek was mentioning to me that there were some tricks to get around it. uh, And I also asked Alberto Gonzalez about this. Um, Anyway, so he said the, uh, the volume on the Game Boy was tricky to be set. The problem is that you needed to reset the channel to make the chip use the new volume or envelope. Uh, which produced a reset on the duty cycle and an audible click sound. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says, if you listen to, for example, uh, the Altered Space soundtrack by Jeff Fallon, uh, you'll notice uh, the noise that changing the volume constantly produces.
Uh, and he says that to avoid that, he only used hardware uh, envelopes, which was also tricky because you had to guess how many frames you had to wait between uh, envelope changes to match their level. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he says that while he was programming his Game Boy emulator, though, he learned a trick which allowed volume changes without channel resetting. And that he said he can't recall exactly the correct values, but he remembers it was something like setting a set or concrete envelope and then sending another concrete value. So like every time you set the value, the volume was increased by one point. So if you want to decrease it by one point, you needed to send the volume uh, data 17 times. Hmm. Hmm. So it's it's definitely a weird exploit. And Hunter Retro Geek was also saying that um, you do have different speeds of your fade-ins and fade-outs, like you just heard earlier, and that you can start at any volume you want. So hypothetically, you could set a really slow fade-out and then change your volume envelopes faster than the fade out even happens. So that's how you could like reset every time to tell it to start like B volume 15, 7, 1. You could just like keep jumping around by sort mm-hmm. of just like doing really slow envelopes that change faster than they can play. Um, but yeah, oh, wow. but again, that's, mm-hmm. there's clicking issues. And so there's all sorts of hacks. And I had heard that Duffel Mask, um, that's another program that you can use to make, uh, you know, chiptune music for a bunch of platforms. And, uh, Duffel Mask did have some sort of mode for making volume envelopes that way, but apparently had problems exporting and it was kind of buggy, so they, they took it out. So hmm. Interesting. Um, oh, yeah, I forgot. And uh, Alberto also mentioned that there was uh, only one original Game Boy game, Prehistoric Man, that he can recall doing those tricks to avoid the clicking. So uh, let's listen to an example of that. Moving on to the noise channel, let's compare that to the NES noise channel. If you remember from our NES episode, the NES noise channel offers 16 preset pitches across two modes. There's a normal mode and a loop uh, noise mode, giving you 32 possible tones of noise. Uh, So on the Game Boy, you have over 30 pitches available per mode, so you really have over 60 different tones of noise available. Here's the regular noise. And here's the loop noise, which gives that more buzzy, metallic sound. So something we talked about in our Sega Master System episode was how the noise produced by the SN76489, got it right, on the, uh, <laughs> had a sort of cough-like sound to it. This also applies to the Game Boy noise, uh, because as Hun Retro Geek points out, 
The noise resets an initial state when the length counter is reloaded or to start a new note. <clears throat> it's easy to hear in Mega Man music, particularly in Mega Man uh, 4 tracks. Yeah, you can sort of hear like when those lower p note, like lower pitch noise attacks hit, like the sort of bass drum sounds. Like you can hear it has that sort of coffee sort of quality to it. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, and, and that is more like the Sega Master System noise in a way. Like the NES doesn't have that sort of. So it, it gives the noise sort of a crunchier sound mm -hmm. than the NES. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely. I think that's a plus. I think that sounds cool. Yeah, no, I think I think that's kind of one of the underrated aspects of the Master System. It has that really, that really iconic like PSG kind of like crunch and that little cough. And the cough is kind of charming, I think. And it's it's cool to have that with kind of like a boosted version of the chip. You know what I mean? Like with some, with yeah. some better sounds. I, I kind of feel like I hear some of the NES purist guys like saying that they they prefer the NES noise channel to the Game Boy. I'm not really sure specifically why. Uh, I don't huh. know if maybe you guys have. I feel like I've heard that before. Like some people saying you can't really truthfully recreate the NES stuff. And obviously, you know, it's not going to be as we just... To, you know technically yeah. explained um and i don't know i guess it's just like a matter of preference yeah i don't know uh i wonder if they might like the looped noise on the nes better um but i feel like it's uh i don't know tighter and more predictable on the game boy so. I, I think hmm. like it's interesting though because like one of my biggest criticisms of a lot of game boy tracks that i hear is the noise channel and that's hmm. only because i work with nes but a lot of the times the noise channel work is not like as crisp and I don't know if that's just design-wise, or if that's part of like the actual, you know, how it works. Or um, like out of question, maybe we can cut this if it's a controversial question. Yeah. Oh sure. But um, like, do you mean like modern LSDJ guys or like Game Boy soundtracks? I, I think it's both actually. Hmm. Um, so, and I think that like some modern LSDJ guys are able to use the the channel better. But I think there's just something about the NESs that's kind of like. I don't really like stiffer or louder or you know what, it, you know what it is. I think I know what it is. It's, it's the actual volume envelopes. I think that's the thing. That could be it. Yeah. I think that's yeah. probably what it is. And I think that maybe we're the, the NES guys who say that are mistaking the fact that we can actually make a nice smooth transition when we do those notes mm -hmm. and we can kind of manipulate it more. And I think that's probably why you've heard that. I imagine. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Better volume control perhaps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so let's move on to the wavetable audio. Uh, in the Famicom Disk System episode, we talked about wavetable synthesis and how you have a free space, like a bar graph, to draw your own waveform. Uh, we demonstrated the Disk System's audio, which was 64 by 6-bit wavetable audio, um, and we explained how those numbers clarify the resolution you're working with. Uh, 64, the first number, is how many steps along that bar graph you have to work with, and 6-bit is the bit depth which tells like your y-axis of the bar graph how high or low your values can be for each of those steps. Uh, so the Game Boy, in comparison, instead of uh, 64 by 6-bit, it's only 32 by 4-bit. So this means you only have half the steps to work with, uh, 32. And with a bit depth of 4, uh, the values of each step can only range from 0 to 15, as opposed to the disk system's 0 to 63. This means that the Game Boy's wavetable is very low quality uh, due to the, the low resolution it offers. We have an example of the sine wave being played back on FDS, followed by the sine wave being played back on Game Boy. And you can easily hear how it comes out a lot rougher on the Game Boy.
So I've also recorded some um, wavetable sounds examples from LSDJ, actually. Basically, in LSDJ, there's a screen. It's called the wave screen, I think is what they call it. Um, and there's all these parameters that you can set to kind of like change the volume envelope and high pass filter, low pass filter, things like that. If you really want to, you know, just kind of tweak it using settings, but you can also kind of like choose from actual just shapes that they've kind of drawn out for you. If you'd rather just pick a wave shape. Um, and the, the, like the ones that it comes with are basically sawtooth, um, a pulse wave, another a third pulse basically. And a, it's, I'm not actually sure if it's supposed to be a triangle or a sign. <laughs> um, it's such a tiny little picture of what it is. And then when you kind of look over at the actual image of what the wave looks like, it really could go either way. Um, oh, sure. I feel like I've read documentation that says one or the other to the point where I don't know which is the official. <laughs> I, oh, sure. I think it's a little bit more triangly. Like if you boost the volume of it a little bit, it's actually pretty close to the NES triangle. Oh, okay. So that, um, I think it's supposed to be a triangle, but I'll, we'll, we'll just play the sounds now and then you can be the judge. <laughs> If uh, if you're looking at like a Game Boy soundtrack and trying to determine if like the audio design in it is advanced or simple, if it's a simpler Game Boy soundtrack, it's sort of what they do with the wavetable channel. That's like one of the biggest things that you'll notice first. I feel like mm-hmm. um, you know if it's a simple soundtrack, they're just going to do like one simple sawtooth. They're not going to make a lot of different sounds with it, and it's not going to sound very smooth. Um, and then if it's dynamic and making a bunch of weird, crazy sounds, it's like, oh, okay, they're probably make, making a bunch of crazy sounds with the wavetable synth. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I think that also kind of applies to, like, modern guys, modern LSDJ guys using, you know, if um, if you if your song has, like, a lot of crazy sounds that you're just like, how the hell are they doing that? I have no clue what it is. Nine times out of ten, it's, like, some crazy wave channel stuff. And that's, like, what draws a lot of people to it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I have an example here from uh, a Game Boy Color game called NSYNC Get to the Show. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Guys, guys, wh- when are you going to stop using the NSYNC games as examples on your show? Right. Uh, yeah, so I can't help it. I'm a secret uh, NSYNC super fan. <laughs> Every episode. Why does the conversation always devolve into an NSYNC game? Sorry, guys. <laughs> But yeah, there's there's this example here where uh, the wave sound is used very interestingly where it sounds like they're playing with a filter, um, which is more like synth-like. It reminds me of the Commodore 64 a bit more. Like You can imagine this voice coming out of the synthesizer and someone turning a knob on it um, to make it sound different. And uh, it's a really cool effect they get out of that channel. Let's give it a listen. So as we mentioned earlier, too, they, this channel can also do sample playback, um, and it's also higher quality samples than the NES uh, typically played, which were, those were typically one-bit uh, samples, 
and the Game Boy plays 4-bit samples. So uh, here's just like a little drum beat made using uh, samples. Yeah, and there's a couple uh, weird quirks to the Wavetable channel that I guess are worth mentioning. Um, so when the Game Boy starts up, uh, sometimes there different models of the Game Boy uh, have different values initialized in there. Um, and this was explained to me by Hunter Geek. It's kind of similar to using Game Genie uh, with the Mega Man soundtracks on the NES, how using the Game Genie can like really mess up some of those soundtracks. Uh, because like the way Mega Man boots up... Um, it doesn't know how to like reset values from like uh, the sound effects from the game genie screen. Um, so like there's a couple of soundtracks. I think like R type is one of them that uh, whatever noise or like sound is coming from the wavetable channel depends on how the Game Boy starts up. It's using that data, um, so it'll sound different on different models. And then there's also I think this is an unrelated issue. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but some models just kind of sound weird. Like, they don't know how to handle the wavetable totally correctly. I, I think, Paul, you ran into this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's especially on the wave channel, like you said. And it seems like especially when you have, when you're using, like, the sample kits in LSDJ, like, it just creates this, like, terrible, unlistenable, unusable distortion that even, like, if you mute the channel, it kind of, like, distorts the other channels. It's really bizarre and weird. Um, I had no re- no idea why it does it. And I actually wasn't even sure, like I, I found it on a Game Boy that I modified with, with the Pro Sound mod, and I thought maybe I did it when I was modding it or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I've, the more you kind of like talk to people about it, the more you kind of discover that it seems to be like a, a certain CPU model of the Game Boy that has this problem. And you can actually, if you open up your Game Boy and like look under the battery, like in the top part where the top part of the battery thing goes in, battery cover you can see the model number and the one i'm looking at it right now the one on my game boy that's messed up it's the model number dmg cpu dash o2 uh there's i'm looking at a chipmusic.org thread also talking about this issue and it says cpu o2 definitely is like known to be one of the model numbers that has that problem huh oh that's interesting let's uh give that a listen So one thing that you don't really hear about too often, and like I didn't even hear about this until like maybe three years after I started making music with Game Boys, was there's actually like a fifth channel on the in the Game Boy sound chip. Like it has input for extra sound, like the same way that you know, like some Famicom game cartridges have an extra expansion sound chip. The Game Boy was set up to accept that, like it has a pin in or whatever for more audio. But like I don't think that there was ever any game that ever used it. So, so what's interesting here is, um, uh, do you know what, there is something more modern that used it perhaps, but, and it's kind of funny cause we were having a little bit of a discussion offline about this, but nano loop 1.5 uses that expansion audio and that's, and it's able to oh, <laughs> manipulate it. Okay. That's what that, that's what that was about. I'm yes. trying to figure this out. I, I'm looking at the nano loop. I, I have a 1.5 card. I've never been able to get it to work. And maybe if somebody mm-hmm. wants to explain it, I would love it because I would love to use it. <laughs> um, I'm looking at the PDF manual for NanoLoop right now, 1.5, and it says the like it, it calls the second pulse wave channel a double rectangular wave. I've never heard it called that before, but that's what it is. And it says I have no idea what the hell that means. Yeah, it says the additional <laughs> voice of the double rectangular wave channel is only audible on grayscale Game Boys. That's DMG and Game Boy Pocket. 
Uh, it's a square wave. The pulse width setting has no effect. Its envelope is always in decay mode. Pitch envelope or LFO has no effect and it does not play if the note is delayed. So it's like a really weird limited extra channel. If uh, listeners know of any tracks that use that, uh, please link that because that'd be great to hear. Yeah, so I guess uh, there's also this uh, kind of an older discussion, but, you know, kind of looking at it on chipmusic.org. Uh, I'll link that here. Uh, and, you know, we can kind of judge by based on what it says here. So, yeah, yeah. If, yeah, if you want to know more about that, we'll just link you to the discussion. So that's great. Oh, yeah. So we should also probably mention that the different models of Game Boy systems have uh, different sound output slightly. Um, so they produce the same sound. So it's not like the Game Boy Color has different sound synthesis to it and that, you know, it's not trying to make different sounds that the Game Boy makes. Um, but, you know, it went through a hardware revision. So, you know, things are laid out a bit differently. Various chips are consolidated. Um, I don't really know all the technical differences between how the boards are laid out. But nonetheless, you know, they have a different sound output. And there's a fantastic website. Uh, I think it's Herbert Wexelbaum. Uh, his page has this comparison. We'll link to it in the show notes. And we'll play a couple examples here real quick. Um, he has an example here from the original Game Boy. And if you listen carefully, you can hear a little bit of noise uh, at the beginning of the track. So, and we also have an example here um, where it's still the original Game Boy, but it has what's called a ProSound uh, mod. Yeah, from... From what I understand, just to explain the ProSound mod, I'm no expert, but from what I understand, somebody just found a place you could like solder a headphone in or whatever, RCA, any kind of, you know, input jack, output jack, excuse me, um, to a different part of the sound chip to like bypass some preamps and stuff that Nintendo put in there. And the preamps work great for headphones, which is what they were assuming people were going to be using. You know, they didn't expect them to be playing through a giant club head house system <laughs> but um when you when you play a pro sound mod through a bigger system or through you know when you're recording or whatever it's just right. cleaner it reduces some of the hum and stuff that kind of was caused by the preamps that nintendo put in there that's the way i understand it yeah yeah and it sounds great uh, let's give it a listen And then there's a bunch more examples on this website, uh, you know, Game Boy Pocket, like all of this crazy shit is on there. Um, but I did want to play the Game Boy Color. Uh, this is what the Game Boy Color sounds like, uh, even with the sound mod for the Game Boy Color. As you can probably hear, there's a bit more of a high-pitched hum in the Game Boy Color, uh, and the sound is also just thinner, so it doesn't mm-hmm. sound as thick as the original Game Boy. Um, so, you know, in some cases, I think it comes down to personal preference, but it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to argue that the original Game Boy isn't objectively, like, the best um, sounding version of the Game Boy. So, actually, there is one difference within the processors of the Game Boy Color and the regular, the DMG um, like one thing you can actually just see straight off the bat in an LSDJ, like the minimum tempo on a regular DMG is just 40 beats per minute. Whereas the minimum tempo on like a Game Boy Color is actually 80 beats per minute. So right off the bat, there's like a difference. And I believe it's just comes down to the processor, um, the processor being faster than the Game Boy Color. You just can't go as slow. Um, 
And another thing with the processor, I just I think certain songs will kind of just crash basically if you try to run them on a DMG. If there's like a lot going on, I think the processor can handle more. One of my songs actually, it's a song that I wrote for a game that never came out, but um, I was going for like a real NES kind of sound. So I, I had the wave channel kind of alternating between like a triangle bass type sound and a bunch of the kits, the sample kits that come with LSDJ, and. Mm-hmm. Recorded off of a DMG, like it sounds great, but it's definitely like you can hear the channels all kind of struggling with each other. And I think it's just because the processor is like really getting maxed out. But huh. um, recorded off of a Game Boy Color, there's not really as, as much of an issue with that. So there, it's a weird kind of example. And we can listen to that now. cool so i was actually ignorant of that benefit to the game boy colors so um that is cool it's uh it's funny that on his site he lists like plus and minus for like the different systems um he says here this is funny he's talking about the uh the game boy pocket and uh he describes the minus for doing a pro sound mod to the pocket as just saying maybe not worth the effort <laughs> <laughs> so just, if you have a game boy pocket don't bother with modding it i guess apparently <laughs> And so coming up, we're actually going to have a bunch of examples, like I just said, recorded from a sound modded original Game Boy, um, from Paul's Game Boy. Um, and actually, some of it includes Game Boy Color music. And I just want to briefly explain how we did that and how that setup works. Um, what we did is there are there's a GBS uh, archive out there for Game Boy music. It's the uh, music data taken from Game Boy ROMs and put into a music format. And because the different versions of Game Boy use like the same audio. Uh, it's just one format regardless of what Game Boy system you're talking about, right? It doesn't matter if it's an original Game Boy game, Game Boy Color game, it's just a GPS file. And there's a tool out there that you can use to convert GPS files back into Game Boy ROMs. Like, if you loaded it up on a in Game Boy emulator, it's just a simple ROM with text on it, it says what track you're listening to, and like the right and left arrows let you pick different songs from the soundtrack. And if you have a flashcard, uh, you can play these soundtracks back on the original hardware, uh, so what this means is you can get games that were never released for the original Game Boy, Game Boy, uh, you know, Game Boy Color games, of course, and listen to their soundtracks on the original Game Boy. And it's just it's really cool to be able to hear them that way, because uh, you know the original Game Boy has like that thicker sound. It doesn't have like the the high pitched hum to it, um, so it has like a beefier sound. And so sometimes I sort of like like to shy away from you know not doing like hardware accurate like uh, recordings, mm-hmm. but in a way I feel like it's the proper way to listen to the soundtracks. Yeah, it's in, in, in some strange way. It's unique, and I also think that I don't know. Actually, it would have been cool if we had found one. I wonder if there's a Game Boy Color soundtrack that's so complicated that it would crash in an original DMG. <laughs> I wish that I had found one. Uh, I mean, you were able to sample the Project S11 soundtrack, 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and that's pretty crazy. That's one of the bigger GBS files out there I've seen. Uh, the music is really intricate in it, and uh, it's crazy as hell. So, uh, if the original DMG Game Boy can handle that, I doubt there's probably a Game Boy Color soundtrack that can't be played on it. So, that's true. Yeah. All right. So, I think that wraps up like the most of the technical discussion we have about the Game Boy. Um, so, let's listen to some Game Boy music. So, you know, I don't think we can do an episode on the Game Boy without, like, referencing the Tetris music briefly. Um, there's not too much to say about it sound design-wise, but it's the game that came with the Game Boy. Um, so I feel like that's the most iconic bit of music uh, that people probably associate with the Game Boy. So it's interesting, just kind of, you know, we were talking a little bit about the history of the Game Boy, but there was a decision that had to be made in terms of what cartridge came out for the Game Boy first. Um, Tetris is the, you know, the game. If you bought Game Boy, you either had Tetris or you bought the other version that came out a little bit later, the Super Mario Land kind of pack-in version. Um, but the Tetris inclusion was kind of an interesting inclusion because Mario Land was kind of released at a similar time. So, you know, why was the Game Boy sent with Tetris? Well, articles I was reading, and I'll post the link here. The idea was they wanted to put something in there that was packed in that wanted to appeal to both boys and girls. So of oh, course, huh. what does what appeals more than anything than Tetris? You know that that'll get all that'll get all the girls buying the console. You know, considering it's called Game Boy, <laughs> um, you know, but you know Tetris is going to really sell the console. So Mario, no, that's too masculine. Too many males are going to play it. We want Tetris. Tetris, that's the way we're going to get girls to play this console. Interesting that they thought that it was yeah the very gender neutral choice. Huh? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's interesting. Did I did yeah. not know that. And of course, there's also uh, Pokemon. You know, everyone's a huge uh, Pokemon fan. Well, I guess I could amend my last statement to say everyone loves Pokemon. Uh, asides from me, I guess. Maybe I'm a little alone on that, but I never had that strong of attachment to those games. Um, I think, and you know, maybe this will be a bit of a controversial statement for the podcast. I don't think the soundtracks are all that special. Um, I mean, I do really like some of the music from them. Um, don't get me wrong, but I feel like it's the case of like everyone played those games and it's just a really big part of everyone's like gaming experience, um, that it's very memorable and a very shared experience. Um, but I feel like if I just played that game today, like if there's a modern game with like an 8-bit soundtrack and it had like the Pokemon music, I don't know if it'd really stand out to me. I'm not, I'm actually not a huge Pokemon guy myself either, to be honest. So I sort of agree, (laughs) unfortunately, and I don't want to alienate anyone with that because like, you know. What's the one game, Lavender Town or something? Lavender Town, the the, the original Japanese version, yeah. actually. That's the um, one that was like... Which is like a creepy, creepy, yeah. like, kind of like... So, Lavender Town... Um, okay, uh, I know the history a little bit about this. So, in general, the original two versions of the of uh, Pokemon in Japan were um, the red and green. 
Blue was at the blue version of Pokemon was actually part of a promo, I believe, for a certain magazine. That's how you got it. And that was the kind of the updated version of the game, which we received. So our red and blue is actually just kind of based off the blue cartridge. Um, in the original red and green, though, the Lavender Town theme, which is one of the towns you get to go to, was definitely like eerie and maybe just like a little bit more caustic, like or actually a lot more caustic. It's spooky. Um, I've listened to it. It's it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's and it's like there's a lot of weird stuff going on, specifically in the wave table. Uh, and you know the wave channel and a lot of it is like really just kind of like kind of hurts your ears mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the only way i can describe it oh that, that's cool i'll definitely i'll give the soundtrack credit for that that's kind of awesome actually yeah <laughs> well they what? removed it in the american version so there's right. like you there's all these like urban legends about it driving kids to like suicide and stuff like yeah <laughs> it's out there <laughs> that sounds like that sounds like someone something yes yeah. i like that's something someone would make up yeah totally this. but of course yeah. <laughs> so yeah i don't know about you guys but i'm definitely heavily biased to the game boy color soundtracks uh i mean there's some very fantastic stuff on the original game boy um but like as we were saying earlier the sound design gets more advanced um, so before we flood the episode with Game Boy Color tracks, I did want to pick out a couple original Game Boy releases that I love. Um, there's this game Trip World made by Sunsoft. Uh, have either of you guys played Trip World before? I don't think so. I've heard of, heard I don't of think it. So now. Mm. Oh, it's awesome! Like, it, it sort of belongs in this like subgenre of Sunsoft games that I would put Gimmick in. Okay. Um, there's Gimmick. There's Hebereke, which are both uh, like Famicom games. And then there's also Trip World, which is a Game Boy game, where it's like those three games in particular have like this very cutesy, like cartoony art style to them, mm-hmm. um, but, but with like really creative and unique sprites and like weird, very weird art design. Um, and I feel like they fall under that, that, that weird little like grouping of games. And I don't know why they didn't go on to make more games like that, because they have a lot of personality. Hmm. Um, yeah, if listeners haven't played Trip World before, like fire up the ROM or look it up on YouTube. Uh, it's a really weird, bizarre game. Uh, some fantastic music. Yeah, I, f- I feel like, you know, is kind of like with the NES is that you could usually rely on Sunsoft to be behind some pretty good soundtracks. So, oh, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. You, you know, it's interesting that that was actually uh, that the soundtrack for Trip World is actually done by Manabi Matsumai. Oh, no way. Oh, oh the, the Mega Man 1 composer. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And you can kind of hear a little bit of that uh, of her sound in there. That's kind of awesome. But it's Sunsoft. That's interesting. So I guess she uh, moved to Sunsoft? Yes, at some point. Mm-hmm. Huh. Oh, wow. I did not. It's funny. I love the soundtrack, but I actually realized I didn't look up who did it. Um, that's really cool. There's one other yeah. song from the soundtrack I really like. It's uh, the final boss theme. It has this great uh, part where like it kicks into this melody and it does these cool pitch bends in there and it just it sounds awesome. Let's give it a listen.
And man, just listening to this again now, like un under the new like uh, context that this was the Mega Man One composer, it does feel in some ways a bit more Mega Man than uh, like any of Sunsoft music does. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's got like that, still got that like cool Sunsoft sound to it, kind of uh, probably because of processor or whatever they were using the actual uh, templates they were using. Right, but, like it, it's that's such a cool track. I like I don't know the soundtrack at all. That's actually a really really awesome track. Yeah, that was awesome. Oh yeah. Oh, it's a yeah. really, it's a really cool, weird game. Like you guys definitely, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll send you links more about it, like to, to a bit more about the game, like later on. Yeah, it's absolutely. Awesome, mm -hmm. So, yeah. um, it was yeah. like, it was like Mega Man songwriting with Sunsoft sound design, which is exactly. like the best of all worlds. <laughs> <laughs> So a, a track I wanted to play uh, was from Castlevania Legends for Game Boy. Um, game was released in 1997, I think. Uh, at any rate, uh, there's a really like there's some really. First of all, it kind of sucks because like Konami has gone back and said that this officially is not part of canon. So oh, anything yeah. that happened in this game didn't really happen. <laughs> well, all and, of like, you, all of Castlevania is fucked at this point. So yeah, I don't <laughs> even know what's going on. Uh, Lord of Shadows too. I I I have no clue what's going on. Yeah, anymore. exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, and you know, it's funny because, like, just as an aside, they're like, well, this is not canon, but this other crazy stuff we just made up that has nothing to do with anything is now canon. Yeah, they kept they kept uh, <laughs> Bloodlines for the Sega Genesis as canon, but acts, <laughs> but acts this game. And I remember thinking, like, that's kind of a strange choice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this not many people really like this game. I like I just like the soundtrack a lot. The game is kind of weird in, in comparison to the other games. And it, it I don't think people look back on it terribly fondly. Uh, at any rate, the final boss, if you're lucky enough to get there uh, in this game, was this weird alternate version of Vampire Killer that I really like. It's kind of like, I don't know, you'll just have to listen. Let's, let's play an example. Yeah, something I should mention that I've, I neglected to mention before when I was gushing about how much better the original Game Boy sound is and stuff, that I, I used to record some Game Boy soundtracks from hardware with the Pro Sound setup and everything, Pro Sound mod. And uh, if you're a fan of the Castlevania soundtracks, um, just let me know and I will send you the links I have to the Game Boy soundtracks because I've personally ripped them from hardware. And uh, you know, maybe I'm tooting my own horn a little bit too much, but it's much better than the official Castlevania like soundtrack oh, yeah. that are out mm -hmm, there. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a funny thing, like it's a bit of a tangent, but as someone who's such a big fan of video game music, I've never been into collecting OSTs. And this is this is exactly the reason. Um, you look at like the Castlevania soundtrack releases, and I think even the Pokemon soundtracks, uh, they have like reverb added onto them. Mm -hmm. um, because I think the idea was that like the Game Boy sound was so simplistic that if they're going to take the time to release a CD and you're, you're putting it through your stereo system, uh, you want to have like a bit of extra sound in there that's maybe more organic or just a little bit like 
warmer or nicer. So I, I think they associated, you know, a bit of a reverb with like a higher quality sound. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gets to the point that when you have like these tracks that are very dense with like the a ripping wavetable synth, you know, like bass lines going on, it winds up making some of the tracks really muddy sounding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the Castlevania Bloodlines for Sega Genesis in particular, like that one's a travesty. If you listen to the to the official release, it's like you can compare it with the hardware and it sounds so that's a subject of discussion for another episode. We'll, we'll do a whole episode on Bloodlines probably. Um but uh, yeah, so it just it gets me like listening to these soundtrack releases that just mess with the sound too much, and it's all you have to do is record it um, from the original hardware, and it sounds so much better. So yeah, I think so too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so moving on, let's move on to some Game Boy Color music. So yeah, earlier in the episode, we uh, you know mentioned we asked Albert Gonzalez about the uh, volume quirks on the Game Boy, and uh, we previously did an entire episode uh about him and if you like game boy music and you're not familiar with his music uh you want to yourself to check out his stuff it is absolutely fantastic uh we're picking just one uh song of his now for this episode uh it's from turok rage wars uh it's just this really cool catchy track um it sort of takes a while to build up then it kicks into this melody like the beat drops and it's just fantastic sounding let's give it a listen You know, it's funny, Paul, actually, after you recorded these uh, samples for me, I actually sent this to Alberto Gonzalez, uh-huh. uh, explaining that it's like, oh, you know, we took your Game Boy Color soundtrack, but sampled it off the original Game Boy. And he was, like, very excited to hear it. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> he, was, like, he was, like, surprised. He was like, oh, man, I didn't remember the original Game Boy having, like, such deep bass on it. Yeah, yeah. So, Pro sound, cool. man. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a weird full circle thing there. Yeah. Recording a soundtrack for the composer and sending it back to him. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Uh, it's awesome. Yeah, one of the um, craziest Game Boy, I guess it's Game Boy Color, Game Boy Color soundtracks I've ever heard is this German game. It's like, I don't even know. It's Autifanten. I'm not, I don't speak German. Um, mm-hmm. Something, uh, Patrick, you know the full title, Commando. Oh, yeah, like Autifanten Commando Stoterbaker or something, yeah. which I don't know German either, so I'm <laughs> I'm screwing that up. So This is uh, this is one of the examples of, like, this game that I never, ever would have heard in my entire life as a kid, certainly, but, like, as a Game Boy musician nowadays, like, somebody played it for me, and I was just like, this is a game soundtrack? Like, are you kidding me? Um, it doesn't, it's amazing. The, the pushing, talking about pushing the boundaries of like four channels of audio. Like I can't, I couldn't even tell you what's on every channel listening to this. It's crazy. Oh, it's ridiculously dense. Yeah. Um, and good songwriting too. 
great songwriting. Uh, yeah, let's give it a listen. Yeah, holy crap, is that a crazy track? It's it's yeah, ridiculous. Geez. Yeah. There's so much stuff going on and like if you try to listen out at any given time for like what's quiet in the mix, like what's not in the forefront of the sound and you can find all of these little details crammed in there. It's it's amazing. Yeah. Um there's another song from the same soundtrack that's uh one of my personal favorite uh Game Boy songs in general. Uh it has this really weird timing to it. Uh like this really herky jerky beat to it. And uh, let's just give it a listen, it's great. Yeah, man. I just the drums in that are incredible. It's ridiculous. Jeez. It's like yeah. I, I don't. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't feel like. I mean, there's those parts. It doesn't even feel like it has like a tempo. Like, how do you program that? You know? That's yeah. Crazy. And um, also like the emotion. Like I don't. Like I said, I never played this game, but like that's got to be like a really creepy, scary level. I hope. <laughs> no, no. These these games are like very cartoony, like kid kid friendly. Like <laughs> that doesn't make sense. <laughs> It's crazy. Yeah. Um, the music is composed by this guy, Stello Dousis, or Dosis. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, and he did uh, Commodore 64 music. Um, so that probably explains a lot. Like, it feels why like so, it, yeah. Why it's so crazy sounding. Um, oh, yeah. And so I don't know that he even necessarily did a lot of Commodore 64 soundtracks. I think he might have been a little bit later to the scene as doing like demo tunes for Commodore 64. Hmm. Um, so that would really also explain a lot. So, you know, he's someone coming into chip music with the perspective of really pushing the sound. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think his stuff on the Game Boy is probably like in the, it has to be like in the top tier, um, with, of the most like advanced sound design for a game. Uh, you know, the only stuff that rivals it is stuff that 
people are making today on Game Boy. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. But even, but even then, I mean, I'm hearing stuff in here that sometimes it's like, wow, like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just absolutely crazy how advanced yeah. the sound is. Yeah, like if he, if he showed up to an open mic and played one of those songs, we'd all be blown away. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he also did, so he only did two Game Boy Color soundtracks. Um, so it's a shame, you know, he has this fantastic sound on the Game Boy and there's not a lot of content from him. Um, this other soundtrack is Das Geheimnis der Happy Hippo Insel. Um, <laughs> it's something about these like happy, hip, happy hippos. Um so uh, let's get some of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Again, awesome, yeah. Yeah, seriously. All right, so it's another one that's kind of interesting for Game Boy Color. And I was talking to I'm a Track Man. It was like quite a bit ago, I guess, like in March or something. And he showed me the soundtrack to a Doki Doki Sasete, uh, which is kind of like a I, – I can't even describe what the game is. The composer is uh, Manabu uh, Namiki, uh, who did uh, Dodonpachi, the, you know, the kind of the shmup uh, games that people like. Oh, okay. Um, at any rate, um, it's kind of an interesting track, so let's play it, and then I'll, I'll, let's talk a little bit about what's so interesting about it. Yeah, I mean, it just kind of sounds like regular music, but there's something that's kind of like an interesting feature here that's used. Um, and I'm going to just read exactly what I'm a Trackman says about it. So channel one is playing bass there. Channel two is playing ARP, so that's what the pulses are doing. The wave channel is playing the lead, and channel the fourth channel is playing the noise. But there's also this accompanying squared drum. And I said to him, well, how, how are we hearing that? Where'd that come? Where does that come from? He said, well, it's actually channel two. Uh, somehow he either made or has a driver that allows an SFX style instrument to take over ch- the channel two ARP. You can hear the drum. Uh, it, it doesn't restart, but it keeps going like nothing ever happened. Um, so it's interesting. He actually, uh, I'm a track man, actually gave me a little bit of uh, a track that kind of demonstrates how this works. So let's play that now.
cool. Yeah, that's a lot crammed into one channel. Wow. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, in that recording you just heard, uh, I'm a track man says that it starts off with channel two and four, and then he turns off the wavetable. And so you can hear that in the middle of that arp, you get a pulse kick, which is pretty cool. So it almost like creates another uh, another channel in there. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's cool too, because it's, uh, you know, it's not too uncommon to, like on Commodore 64 music, to swap in like a drum hit like that into the music. Um, but it's not something you're going to find used on the Game Boy all that often. Um, and to, to very smoothly, especially with the finicky volume envelopes and the yeah. click, clicking sounds you can get, because that was a very clean implementation of it as well. Mm-hmm. Like you didn't hear clicking and stuff on it. So, um, yeah, yeah that, that's like, that's a very cool use of that. Yeah. And I didn't know about that. I'd never heard that soundtrack before either. So, uh, thank you. I'm a track man for sharing that with us. Yeah. Thanks a lot, man. Um, and so, you know, everything I've played in this episode so far, aside from the thing we just heard is all stuff that like I kind of found digging around over the years. Um, but something that some that completely evaded my knowledge somehow is this Project S11 game for the Game Boy Color. Um, this is something I found out about like somewhat more recently, and um, Sasquatch like uploaded the whole soundtrack to YouTube, and it's just I think like this might be like at the top, or, you know, it rivals Stellaudasus for you know the advanced sound design for the Game Boy. Is just really crazy. Um, it was one of the bigger GBS files I could find, which does not surprise me because like there was there's so much going on in there. Must be like tons of instrument data and stuff. So um, yeah, without further ado, let's give some of Project S11 a listen. I mean that's it's unbelievable like it sounds again like modern chip music like I could picture hearing that at a show nowadays like no sleep or something like you know and I mean that in like a respectful way 
Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, yeah, like that's like something like I would expect. Like you'd hear that like at a blood fest, and like exactly. everyone would be going nuts to it. Like, yeah, that's, totally. that's awesome. Cool. So I guess that about wraps things up for the main chunk of our episode. Uh, let's move on to comments and listener feedback. Oh yeah, right before we get to our first comment though, uh, we'd like to mention that last episode we said we were going to do an appendix episode on Maniac Mansion. Uh, it's still happening. Uh, both Steve and I happened to be very swamped uh, this past couple weeks with work. Like I had to work nine days in a row. Steve, I know you were on a flight that got, that got delayed and everything. Like yeah. Um. So yeah, sorry about that. That's uh, we tried to you know stay roughly on schedule, but um. You know, so I don't know exactly when that episode's going to be posted, and uh, but relatively, you know, not to distant future, there will be a follow-up on Maniac Mansion. So yeah, and we got some really good information uh, from the Fat Man himself. Um, so we have some cool stuff to share. Uh, so hopefully, we'll get that done pretty soon. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Thank you for your patience. Okay, the first comment comes from Peg Mode. Uh, this is in response to us talking about how like. It was kind of interesting that the VRC6 added a sawtooth wave because it's such a standard waveform on classic synthesizers. But I was saying you can't really find it on other systems, you know, like the Sega Master System, the Sega Genesis, the Sega, you know, like none of them have like a dedicated sawtooth channel. Uh, I was sort of, he, Peg Mode points out that uh, the SID 6581 for the C64 can have up to three sawtooth waves. I know you guys were thinking more exclusively about video game consoles, but the C64 is a good example of the use of a sawtooth wave on a sound chip. Yep, no, no, we totally dropped the ball. That's something I should have had in mind. So yeah, um, I, you know, I, yeah. I wasn't thinking of it. Um, but like, even just based on my comment, like, I, I guess then the next question is, was did anything have a dedicated sawtooth channel? Um, I think would be the the bigger question then. Yeah, I think that's uh, only only going to be the VRC6 probably. I think so, yeah. But that would be great if we're wrong again, because then someone could correct us on it, and we'd learn I love something, being but, wrong, because yeah. then we find out, you know, we find out the truth, so. Yeah. <laughs> well, we don't want to be wrong too much, otherwise we feel stupid, but no, no. If, if anything, yeah. if you listen to anything that's technically wrong, feel free, please. We like people jumping in and um, correcting the technical stuff, because that's, like, that's stuff we like to know, so. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, C64, that's, like, uh, something that we haven't talked about that much. We did do that sort of, like, filler episode on Gordian Tomb. Um, but, you know, there will be more C64 common, uh, content eventually, because uh, there is great stuff for that system, and we're definitely not going to overlook it. So, All right, so next comment we have here is kind of a conversation here between uh, Vera Lovely and Ivan Trackman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vera starts out with, Yamaha specifically held exclusive rights to the patent on FM synthesis until 1995, so companies were beholden to their whims if they wanted to use FM chips. According to internal uh, communications at Atari, at the time they were attempting to license its use in their arcade machines, their contract with Yamaha forbade them to use the YM2151 in any product that competed with their consumer music offerings. This may have included the Atari ST, given the music computer Yamaha had on the market at the, at the same time, which was the uh, CX5M. And there's a link to actually all the Atari mails back and forth, which is huge and long and pretty awesome. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, the next comment is from Hun Retro Geek. He says, oh, that's right. I hate the dumbed down samples in the U.S. version. This change is totally unjustified because they kept the laugh and the epitaph track for both versions. And that laugh takes about two kilobytes, while all the drums together took about 700-something bytes. 
Yeah, that's a good observation because yeah. that's that's in reference to the Japanese version of Castlevania Three. I was saying that the American version uses the same, mostly the same samples, but some of them are truncated to be smaller. So it's like they had to save on size. At least that was my speculation that they had to save on size. But both of the games use the same sample of laughing. It's in that epitaph, epitaph track, the like the name entry tune or whatever that has that Dracula cackling. Um, that sample is not trimmed down for the U.S. version. And it's a huge sample. It's really, really large. So the extra space in that sample, like more than takes up more room than what they cut off the drums. Mm-hmm. So it's a very odd, like if they were trying to save size, they could have trimmed the laugh down a little bit and like no one would have noticed. And yeah. they, they would have been able to keep the original drum samples. So it's kind of like if they had to save space, they chose a really odd way of doing it. It's like to them, the laugh yeah. was really important or mm-hmm. who even knows what the reason might be. But um, <laughs> yeah, it really doesn't make a lot of sense once you think about it. So yeah. We need, we need to make a soundboard episode that just has all the dumb sound no, effects. No, so I did something crazy. So you know I have my, my sample pack for Famatracker, Buck, Bucky's DPCM sample pack, whatever yeah. it's called. Mm-hmm. And Famatracker lets you preview the samples before you open them. You know, you can just click on the file name and it, and it plays it for yeah, you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I just like clicked on one and held the down arrow to like scroll mm-hmm. through the folder. And the resulting sound was awesome and chaotic it was just like <laughs> like i can't even imitate the sound it sounded crazy okay and so we've selected another comment here also from hot Nutro geek we talked about uh you know the vrc6 wasn't just a sound expansion ship um you know it was a mapper that handled all sorts of other uh, tasks uh, we sort of gloss over the details on that, though, and he provides like a much better breakdown of what it could do. So he says the non-music related tasks were enabling the use of more PRG, that's program, uh, ROM, than the standard 32 kilobytes and more CHR, character ROM, the standard 8 kilobytes, uh, which amounts to 512 tiles. That's what two chips uh, inside every cart have. They'll have one is all of the game and the rest is like the graphics tiles. That's what you'll find inside every NES cartridge. Uh, two chips for those. Um, the mappers allowed the console to see different parts of the ROM chip that was larger than the standard sizes. For example, the simplest mapper to build would be to allow uh, 64 kilobytes of PRG ROM. The setup is called BN ROM, and it's made by using a single one-bit memory latch. This could toggle whether the first or second 32 kilobytes of the ROM is available to the system. Oh yeah, I've heard of that before. I guess that's what they're talking about when they uh, when people talk about bank switching. I never really had much of a context for it. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it says different parts of the game are stored in these separate chunks called banks. So one might have all the music and the music engine. Another might have all the sprite structures and code that places the sprites at the right positions. Another one could have all the collision detection and enemy AI, etc. So that's cool. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. It's interesting to think of it as being separate. And just kind of like, because you always assume that when you just think of the idea of ROM, the standardized ROM, like just from our kind of like, we don't know anything about computers, but we used ROMs before um, kind of perspective. You think of everything kind of plugged together, like as, as in one piece. But like, it's interesting to think that like things were stored in different spots on the cartridge. Like I never have ever imagined or thought about that really, you know. And I think, again, someone could correct me if I'm wrong on this. I know we have listeners who know all about this, uh, but ripping yeah. NSFs, you know, make, mm-hmm. getting the NES music uh, ripped out of game ROMs, there were apparently very few games where you could, like, just easily, like, use a bit of code and, like, trim it out. 
mm-hmm. a lot of them require like writing code and doing all these tricks to basically stitch the music back together in a file because i think there's mm-hmm. stuff where like bank switching is, is involved to find like different bits of the music code sometimes or get to different mm-hmm. parts of the soundtrack um so it's apparently a lot a lot of work to create nsf files and i think bank switching is part of the problem um but again you know i know mr norbert and other listeners would be able to like clarify a bit more on that so yeah no that's really cool though uh so let's move on to name that game uh, we had a song that wasn't guessed uh, in the previous episode as it, it was in, so we went on to play two examples from it. Um, let's give the latter uh, example a, a listen again. Okay, and um, that music is actually from Shadowrun for the Sega Genesis. Uh, we had multiple people guess it correctly. The first person was Vera Lovely, who commented uh, via private message. And Vera also had uh, an interesting comment, some feedback on the Name the Game segment, which I wanted to bring up. Uh, they had mentioned that since we switched to doing bi-weekly episodes, uh, if someone doesn't guess a song, that means we kind of linger on the same thing for like a full month, possibly longer, which kind of sucks. Um, for, you know, as far as like listener participation goes. Um, yeah. so I was thinking about it. They had the suggestion of maybe, uh, like just moving on and seeing what it was. I think, I mean, that is a very smart solution. I kind of like the idea of doubling down on how we've been doing it though. Um, mm-hmm. because I got this weird sort of odd sense of satisfaction of not necessarily, <laughs> not, not, not just that, that sounds bad. That sounds devious. Like, Oh, we tricked them. Like, because you know, if I really wanted to like, trick listeners i would pick some like sure where like amiga game like something that like <laughs> towns we're going to the fm towns yeah, right like I, w- I would re- if i really wanted to be like a jerk like i would pick something like ridiculously obscure to, uh, but mm-hmm. you know where i got some satisfaction though was going through a soundtrack and picking something else that was like semi-obscure from the same soundtrack like it was mm-hmm. just kind of fun going through shadow run and being like oh you know what okay they didn't get it. let me pick this other song and mm-hmm. i sort of also like the idea again it, it, i can understand from the listener side it might be like a little annoying or boring to like be stuck on the same thing for so long when you want to be quizzed again. Um, but I like the idea of that. It could be so punishing and take so long. Like the idea that we might be stuck on the same quiz for like two months that hopefully <laughs> I'm hoping that it could have the effect that people get so bored and frustrated that if they don't know that they'll be calling up their friends or posting it on forums being like, what the hell is this? I don't want to hear this anymore. Um, <laughs> so that, I think that's the positive side of doing it that way. So um, I, I think we'll keep doing it that way. So it was a very smart feedback. It, was, it makes the most sense. Um, I actually sort of stole this segment from another podcast. That's it's not music related, but they do something called like "Who's That Noisy?" and it's like uh, you have to guess like what this weird sound is. And in that podcast, they do name it. I think if people get stuck on it, but um, we'll keep doing it this way. So, <laughs> I mean, so far, no one's got, we haven't gotten stuck for more than a couple times in a row. I mean, if it yeah. really does get to two months or something, we probably will. I, I, I suspect we might have to make an executive decision there. Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, but, I mean, we would roll in yeah. like hints though and stuff like that. I think. So. Yeah, and I think the thing is too is that like if, if you do know the answer, just because like other people are guessing, uh, just make sure you comment on you know the podcast itself here on SoundCloud, and that way everyone knows that you've answered it already. Because I feel like sometimes some people think that someone's answered already, but no one has. So just make sure like you know feel free to send us a message or just just or put it on the podcast or something to let us know that you know what it is, um, and that way you know it won't linger around, obviously. 
Yeah, and I want to give shout-outs, too, to um, Eric Dude. He listened, and um, he was the first person to publicly post uh, that it was Shadowrun for the Genesis. And I don't know how to pronounce this. One am or weary? One I am... Sorry, I'm. <laughs> I can't read that. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually trying to think about that too. One a.m. Or I don't know. One. That, that's actually that's actually a a, a friend of mine actually uh, who did uh, Curse of the Crescent Isle DX. That's Adam Maori. So I am Maori, or uh, oh, I don't actually okay. have to ask him what it means. Oh. <laughs> so, and uh, he also j- jumped in with uh, the Shadow Run. So that was cool seeing people jump in. So yeah. Um, all right, so now that we've gotten that one out of the way, finally, guys, anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's take a listen to this week's track. Uh, good luck, everyone. See if you can name that game. Yeah, so I guess that about wraps things up for the main chunk of the episode. Uh, I would like to thank again Paul for joining us. Yeah, man. Sure. Thanks for having me. It was great. This is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it was really fantastic help. And again, you provided most of the um, recordings uh, because I lost actually in a move my flash cart. Hmm. Um, so I don't have a setup again for recording Game Boy uh, hardware. So, and I know you own like a million Game Boys. Um, so <laughs> I'm kind of surrounded Literally by them million. right now. Literally. Actually, yeah, yeah. I don't think I, I don't know anyone who owns more Game Boys than you actually. So <laughs> that's there's some people there's people out there buying like lots of broken Game Boys on eBay. Hoping, oh, that's true. You know, <laughs> find you haven't gotten to that point. Yet. How how many no. Game Boys do you have? Uh, I genuinely don't know. I'm staring right now at five. <laughs> and then i know that's that's just ones that you like pulled out for like for examples yeah. and like comparing and stuff but uh, there were at least like five more in the tub where i got these from yeah <laughs> and that yeah. might be low i'm sure somebody's listening right now and being like what the hell right <laughs> game boy cred get out of here no no <laughs> um so yeah and it's great that's great talking to you again about video music and uh yeah thanks thanks again for joining us so of course much. of course anytime yeah thank you so, I guess that leaves one last thing here. Uh, Patrick, do we have a song of the week? Yes, uh, there is. We'll pick another Game Boy song to stay relevant to this episode. Uh, there is Robocop, which has this fantastic soundtrack by Jonathan Dunn. Um, he's a guy who did Commodore 64 music, uh, NES music. Uh, he has a bunch of great stuff that we'll be talking more about in the future. Uh, I know, I think you've mentioned the Jurassic Park soundtrack for the NES before, Steve. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, yeah. Didn't he uh, do the Darkman one, too? Uh, I believe he did, yes. Yeah, that was yeah. cool. So he's done a lot of great stuff. And uh, this track in particular definitely, like, you know, definitely brings up that Commodore 64 vibe a lot where it's very long. Um, you know, it's not typical of NES music to have these really long songs before they loop. Um, but nonetheless, he, st- he still wrote that because that was like sort of in his wheelhouse. So uh, he came up with this fantastic track. Um, yeah, thanks for checking it out. And thank you for listening to Retro Game Audio.